Right, good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be here. Lorraine is here. Um, she's just at the service next door, um, and she'll be across in a few minutes. If I look a bit lost and forlorn, that's because my best half is not here with me. You know, I met her under a table at a Bible college function years and years and years ago. No, true, true story. True story. And she was my secretary on student council. She was so organized, so put together, and she looked good. I thought, I've got to marry this woman. Best decision I ever made in my entire life. So that's our, kind of our background there. <laughs> so, sorry? You want to know about the table? <laughs> the tablecloth was up. Okay. <laughs> I can tell you more later. So. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a true story. So, um, yes, we, um, we've been with Mission Aviation Fellowship now for, this is our 20th year, and uh, we've been serving the Lord throughout uh, South Africa and in other parts of Africa as well. And so this morning, I just want to give you an update on where we are and what we're doing. But before we do that, just to say thank you, church, for standing alongside of us all these years. Um, from under the dining room table all the way through, you've been supporting us, you've been praying for us, you've been encouraging us, and we just really, really appreciate your support in the work that we've done. And lots of lives have been touched throughout Africa because of your involvement in the ministry that God's called us to. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, there are things that have happened because you've been involved. And one day... One day, when we're all resting on the riverbank on the other side, you'll begin to be part of that ministry and see what has happened. Okay, so something to look forward to. So, that's our family. For those who do know them, David on the left and Mariette, they've been married about six or eight years. See, this is where I wish Lorraine was here. She'd know those details. I'm just vaguely aware I've got married children, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so apparently they've been married six or eight years, and I believe there's a grandson involved, and I think there's pictures of it later. My daughter and her husband, Johan, uh, they, they're living well in Pretoria, I believe, on the north side of Pretoria, and they're adulting very, very well, and they've been married about a year. Um, I've been told that grandson belongs to David Mariette. He's 10 months old, and uh, apple of his kids, his, his, his parents' eyes, and my wife just loves him to bits as well. But on a serious note, that's going to be a hard thing for us to leave them behind, and you'll hear why later on, because we are, we are going to do something quite different. For those who perhaps have never heard of MAF, or like me, as you get older, your memory gets a bit rusty, (laughs) MAF was a mission organization that started at the end of the Second World War. Is there anybody here in their mid-20s? Don't don't be embarrassed. I was there once upon a time as well, believe it or not. You're there in your mid-20s. Okay, sir, us here. (laughs) You've got a good beard. (laughs) But basically, a bunch of of young combat pilots in their mid to late 20s at the end of the Second World War, about 1945, thought, how can we use aircraft for the good of the kingdom of God? They just got this vision. In 1946, our first flight took place. It was a woman pilot, believe it or not, by the name of Betty Green. She had been involved in the war. She had been transporting military aircraft from point to point. She had also been one of those brave pilots who used to tow the droves behind them that the combat pilots practiced their shooting on. She'd done high-altitude research. And she was our first, military, uh, first uh, mission pilot. And the first flight went all the way from uh, L.A. down to Mexico City. Took three days in a pre-World War II biplane. But that vision that those young men had grew to an organization which today, approximately every four to five minutes, one of our aircraft take off or land somewhere in the world 24-7. So if you are 20, as you are, sir, and you have been given a vision by God, run with it. It may be scary, but run with it and just see where God takes it. So that was just something to just really be excited about. When we first started with MAF, we started flying into the neighboring countries, like Mozambique, Zambia, and those places. 
And gradually, my service with MAC morphed into be acting as a roving relief pilot in the different programs. So I'd go up for a month, two months, three months at a time, as far north as Chad, Lesotho, all the surrounding countries. And at a point, I ended up working as an instructor pilot in Lanteria. Those who get our newsletters will remember that phase of our life. And then we got to the point where we came to 2016, and we realized all the work that we were doing for MAF was outside of South Africa. Lorraine had been staying at home, looking after the kids and feeding the, the dogs and watering the pot plants, and just keeping the hub together, because she was our communication hub. And then we got to the point where we realized the kids are out of the house. Uh, where do we go from here? And so we prayed about it very much, and the Lord said, you are free to leave Johannesburg. And those of you who left Joburg know the best view of Joburg is in your rearview mirror, okay? <laughs> so we did. <laughs> and the Lord allowed us to move down to George. Um, so that's where I walk my dog every morning. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that or that uh, <laughs> isn't really a toss-up. And the Lord allowed us to buy our first house. I mean, I was like about 57, and Lorraine had just turned 60. We bought our first house. I even managed to carry my bride over the doorstep. <laughs> I went for physio after that, <laughs> and that's probably what happened to my knee, but <laughs> don't tell her that. And, um, yeah, and so as the time went on, when we got back to George, Lorraine got involved with Carmel Guest Farm again. Uh, she said, I, I, she's always been involved in some sort of ministry, and she can't just sit at home and practice a tennis swing and work in a suntan, and she said, I've got to get involved with ministry. So we knocked on Carmel's door, and they put her in charge of the housekeeping department again, uh, and she worked there well. Now, I was a bit nervous about that, because the last time she worked at the housekeeping department, she fell pregnant twice. But she assured me, <laughs> she assured me that it wasn't going to be an issue this time. So. And in January this year, she resigned from that post in preparation for the next step of our life. In 2018, I was serving in Uganda, and they had an instructor's post available, which I applied for. I didn't get it, but they created another post for us, a post where we're going to go up to Uganda full-time for four years, and I'll be working 50-50 as an instructor pilot and as a line pilot. The instructor pilot will be preparing the next generation of young guys coming through MAF. They've gone through the selection process, they've raised their support, they've done the initial training, and my role will be to prepare them for, for field service. And then the rest of the time I'll be doing just ordinary line flying, which I really enjoy. We'll be living in Kampala, a little suburb southwest of Kampala called Makindi, sorry, southeast, and we'll be operating out of Kajansi Airfield. This is an airfield map that have presence at since 1987, and we own the airfield. We've got a big maintenance hangar there. We've got offices there, all our aircraft there, and this is where we operate from. So early morning departures, when you get airborne, you bank out left over Lake Victoria with a sunrise. Oh, my goodness. You've got to come and visit me, right. <laughs> and trust me, if you haven't eaten a Ugandan pineapple, you've never eaten a proper pineapple. Just come and visit me for the view and the pineapple. You're also welcome to come and share my office with me. Um, which is where I'll be working from. This is just put in there for those guys who pilot, okay, who just like this sort of stuff. So between now and May, when we leave, we're going to have to move this forward. I'm about to fall over a lump in the carpet. Um, when we leave, we'll be raising support. Uh, we've got a lump sum we've got to raise, packing up our house and just getting ready to go. And we'll be visiting churches in Cape Town now still until the end of March. If there's anybody here with a gift for packing up garages, uh, <laughs> My children have told me, Dad, don't go into the garage without a GPS because we'll never see you again. So I'd appreciate that sort of help. But the Lord has gone ahead of us. We really have a lovely couple who signed up to rent our house. We've got storage for our stuff, and so we're going to be packing up and moving that way. We do have that lump sum to raise. Um, the Lord's already providing quite a lot of it. It's coming in, and we're really excited about that encouragement that's happening as well. On the far left, you'll see we decided to take our dog with us. It's a rescue dog we've been caring for for many years. 
and we're not taking kids. Some missionaries go with seven kids. I figured we could go with one dog. That would not be too bad. And so my sister-in-law in Canada is crowdfunding for our dog. <laughs> and the other day, we got this letter from Greta, I think it is, some dog in Canada who's wishing my dog well on her journey. So, <laughs> so there we go. That's just some fun stuff I'm just busy putting in there. We have prayer requests outside. I believe the rain has set up a table outside. If you'd like to get those prayer requests, if you'd like to sign up to get a newsletter or the math newsletter, feel free for you to do that. Lorraine will be here at the end of the service. She's an absolutely gorgeous brunette who still looks good 36 years later. That poor woman. I don't know how she does it. This is amazing. Now we're going to have some fun. Are you up for a little bit of fun? Okay? If I had a boda boda in Uganda, this is all Ugandan speak, what would I do with a boda boda? Shake it. Oh, okay, I'm not going to answer that because I might give it away. <laughs> Eat it. You are the man. Ride it like a motorbike. <laughs> it's the most common means of transport around there. After minibus taxis, the boda boda. Okay. Um, what would I do with a Rolex? Wear it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sell it. You could, but not this one. Hey? Eat. Who said eat it? You're quite right. That's a chapati with an omelette on top and lots of peri-peri, and you roll it up, you put it in your lunchbox with a Coke, and you are sorted for the day. Okay? <laughs> it's the most amazing meal. If I'm going to make a short call, what am I doing? How do you know that? <laughs> Have you been there, Gus? <laughs> Enough information, okay. <laughs> but that's called making a short call. This is all Ugandan speak. And the first time someone said to me, I'm going to make a short call, but he left his phone on the table. I'm going, like, well, what's going on here? <laughs> now I know what a short call is. If I flashed or beeped you, what have I just done? Called you. Yeah, it's, it's like the, whoops, where did it go? Um, it's the Ugandan form of making the police call me. So I would phone you, let it ring three times, and then I'm expecting Andrea to call me back because I've got no airtime, you see, and I know she has. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what making a short... I mean, that's what beeping someone or flashing someone is. And that's just interesting information about Uganda that we're going to go serve for the next four years. Yeah, I'll send you a picture of us in the smallest church. Lorraine and I will be the whole congregation. The pastor would be the third person. <laughs> So that's where we're going, and that's what we're going to be doing. Why, at our age, are we going to do this? What on earth prompts people who are now getting ready for retirement to take this huge leap and this huge step? And I think the answer is found in God's Word, which we're going to. You know, there was a time, was, there are five men who made a massive impact on my life, huge impact on my life. Okay, let me clarify that. There are many men who've walked this earth in my time who've made a massive impact on my life. Some of those men are still alive. Some of those men have gone to be with the Lord. But there are five men in Scripture who've made a massive impact on my life. And I want to share those five men with you today and how they've impacted my life. And hopefully, something about those men will impact your life um, and your relationship with the Lord. And the first of that, the answer is always... Jesus, right, that's the first answer. And in 1972, in the Anglican Church in Pinelands, there was a missions week 
The pastor at that stage, Father Norman, hadn't even been saved. He was an ex-parabat, he was blind, and he'd taken up the Anglican ministry as a profession. And there was a guy called, I think it was Canon Bruce Evans was one of them. And they were doing this missions week. And Father Norman was saved <laughs> during that week. But this little 12-year-old boy, very embarrassed about what he was about to do, waited until everybody had gone for tea. And he crept up and he knelt at the altar rail. And I committed my life to the Lord. Because I knew I had to do that. And nothing much happened uh, after that. My spiritual life didn't grow very much. Um, bits and spurts, but nothing really much happened significant. Until in 1978, I was at a, a, a Youth for Christ Easter conference at Carmel Guestfarm. Uh, a friend of mine, Graham, had hauled me down from the army base. He said, come, 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 let's go down. And I thought there'd be good food, might meet somebody nice, just get out of the army camp. Turns out the food was horrible, I met nobody, the weather was raining. But a guy called Stephen Alford was preaching. And I remember sitting in that barn, and Stephen Alford challenged us to commit our lives to serving the Lord full-time. Anywhere, anytime, any cost. And about half the barn stood up. He said, no, sit, 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 sit. And he preached that sermon again. And as he preached that sermon, I just knew I had to respond to God's call. To serve the Lord anywhere, anytime, any cost. And that was the commitment I made in 1978. I had no idea how it was going to pan out. I didn't even know what the next step should be. And my friend Graham said to me, you know, I've got to go to Bible college. I went, Bible college? He said, well, if you're going to serve the Lord as a missionary, you've got to go to Bible college, dude. So I went and looked for a Bible college. The first one I went to, the guy was late. His office was a tip and the coffee was horrible. The next one I went to, it was clean, it was tidy, it was on time, and they had decent coffee, so I signed up. <laughs> That's how spiritual my next step was. But the Lord just gave me my wife. <laughs> and this young woman had also committed her life to serving the Lord full-time at a Presbyterian camp uh, in her teenage years. And we found that we had something in, in, in common over there, to serve the Lord full-time anywhere, anytime, any cost. And then there are four other men in Scripture who've had a profound impact on my life. And I want to share those four men with you as well now. The first one was a guy called Abraham, a man of incredible faith, a bit of a nomad. Now, the first guy we read about in Scripture that God seems to have spoken to directly and called to do something specific was Noah, right? I mean, Adam was, he created Adam and appointed him as estate manager of, of Eden. But Noah was the first guy he called and said, Noah, I want you to go into the shipbuilding business and do a one-off for me. And Noah responded to God and he built the ark and we know what happened as a result of that. And then there seems to be nothing specific happening until God calls Abraham. Now, we know that Noah was a godly man. He was without blame, etc., etc. And so God called Noah. But the next person that we see calling is he's speaking to Abraham. But there's nothing specific about Abraham. We don't know anything about Abraham's prior relationship with God. We do know that his father had taken him, had moved them from from. Ur, and he'd moved them about 1,200 k's up to Haran, and they'd settled there. Scripture tells us that they were apparently en route to Canaan, but for some reason, Terah decided to stop there, and he ended up dying there, and that's where Abraham was living. We also know, if you read Scripture really, really carefully, that there was a bit of an overlap between him and Seth, who was Noah's son, a couple of years, but we don't know how or why or what relationship Abraham had with God. Scripture is very silent on that. We can draw deductions. The archaeological evidence would show that perhaps the culture he was staying in worshipped the moon and they worshipped other gods. But for some reason, Abram resonated when God spoke to him. And God said to Abram, I want you to do something. 
Now, just think about Abram. Family man, he's with his family. He's, he's just getting on with life. I mean, he's building a business. He was farming. Whatever he was doing, I don't know what he was doing, but he was just living his day-by-day life. Um, wishing he had children, because remember, he and Sarah had been married for a while, and there were no kids. And in that culture, children was important. And then God calls him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people and your father's family and go to a land I will show you. He says this in Genesis chapter 12. And we read that Abraham did that. He packed up his bags, packed up his family, he took his nephew Lot with him, and off they went. Now some people say, yeah, but Abraham already knew because Terah had been going there, and so therefore he knew where he was going. But Hebrews kind of puts a lid on that and says, no, Abraham went to a land and he knew not yet where he was going. So we read that in Hebrews. So Abraham was packing his stuff and heading off. Now remember, this is pretty unprecedented because Abraham didn't have the whole of Scripture in front of him. We read, oh yeah, Abraham did that, Moses did that, yeah, this is going to be good, God's got this. He had an understanding and relationship and a trust with God to go into the unknown, um, which was pretty, pretty amazing. So he took all his head and he traveled about 800 k's down the western shore, eastern shore of the Mediterranean and he gets to Canaan, God says, this is it, this is where you're going to be. But four times while he's there, God promises him, you are going to have a son. And there's going to be offspring through you. And Abraham believes him. And even though Hebrews 11 says he was as good as dead, I mean, he was an old fossil. You know, he was like pushing 90. His wife was 80. They were long past childbearing age. They had been proven already. They had no children. And scripture says he was as good as dead. And yet God says to him, you're going to have children and you're going to have a nation from me. And Abraham believes him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham wasn't perfect. And you remember in Genesis chapter 12, there's a bit of a famine, so he has to nip down to Egypt where there's food. And he lies about his wife to save his own skin. He said, well, no, she's my sister, which technically was right. It was his half-sister from another mother. Well, no, no, yeah, well, yeah. So technically he was right. But he thought, if I said she's my wife, and they're going to take her as his wife, and Pharaoh's going to kill me for... So he lies to save his own miserable skin. And kind of, or he tells a half-truth, which is just the same. And God has to step in and redeem the mess and, and get Abram out of this panari that he got himself into. <laughs> but we read later that he goes into battle on behalf of his son, his nephew Lot, who had been captured. Remember by the four kings? I can never remember the guy's name, but those four kings who ransacked Sodom and Gomorrah, carted them all off. And Abram takes about 380 or 400 guys and goes after these four kings and their armies. <laughs> now, that takes some faith, doesn't that? And he brings Lot back and rescues Lot. And on the way back, he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings out the bread and the wine, and they have a prototype of a communion. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything he's got. And then a little while later, Abram meets God, and God says, you're going to have a son. He says, come with me. Let's, let's go outside. Let's go outside. So they walk outside that night, and they're standing outside, and they're looking up at the stars. And I can just hear God saying, it's beautiful, huh? Isn't it awesome? And Abraham's looking around, and God says, your descendants are going to be like these stars one day. Your descendants from me are going to be like these stars. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Old man, no kids in sight, dad's been trying, nothing had been happening. Then we have the covenant with Abraham, where God 
talks to him and says, the people who are going to come from you will be in captivity for 400 years and then they're going to be released and rescued and then they're going to come back and live in this land. And there was that covenant that night when they had the animals split in half and the doves on either side. But in Genesis 16, Sarah's getting a little bit anxious now. Now she's getting really, really broody because she's been promised a son. Now she's getting broody. So she says, well, maybe if you go and sleep with my, my servant, maybe we can kind of make a plan there. So Abram falls for that, and that doesn't end well. We hear about how they had to be kicked out of the family, and there's just all the angst that happened there. And the tension that existed between Hagar's offspring and the Jews to this very day. And then again, there's this promise for a son. But you see how Abraham's relationship with the Lord is slowly growing. He's becoming more familiar with God, and he's busy learning stuff from God, and he's learning to interact with God. And then God says, okay, this is it. Climb up the Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to destroy the city. And Abraham goes into battle on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, Lord, and we can just hear the businessman here. Well, if there's only 35 guys... <laughs> And God says, okay, for 35. Okay, okay, just, well, can we make it 30? I mean, like there's whole bargaining going on here. What about if there's 20? Um, and at the end of the time, I don't think there were even five. And God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And you think, okay, Abram's making a bit of progress. And a chapter later, who does he lie to about his wife again? Abimelech. Why? To save his skin once again, because he's afraid. And you would have thought he would have learned the first time, eh? but apparently not. And then, finally, Isaac the apple of his eye. They're both really happy about it. They're excited about it. And then a chapter later, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him for, to me. Moses went, oh Lord, but I can't do it for this and I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do the follow thing and Lord, I can't speak and I can't do this and I can't do that. However, in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, went and got some kahohot and some rye wood and some sacrifice wood, and off they set. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? I can't imagine just how he processed this. But there seemed to be a certainty in him that he knew what was going to happen. Now, here's the thing. Abram had no written scriptural precedent to follow. He had perhaps heard some oral tradition. He perhaps heard some stories. He'd been walking with God. But there was something happening in Abraham's life that he recognized God and he was prepared to obey him and to prepare to follow him. And, of course, when God says to him, no, don't go ahead with the sacrifice. There is a ram. That must have been a bit of a clincher for Abraham. But I think that was quite incredible. But we read that in Isaiah and James, despite Abraham's failings, Abraham is rec recorded as being a friend of God. That personal relationship was there, that friend of God. And that, was, that life of that man really, really impacted me, especially the first part where God says, leave your family, leave all your stuff, and go to the land I will show you. And that had kind of impacted me before I proposed to Lorraine. I remember sitting on the mountains above um, Rose Memorial when it was still safe to do that. <laughs> and I sat there with her and I said, Lovey, you see those mountains over there, the Hottentot Hollands Mountains? She said, yeah, I see them. I said, God's called me to go beyond those mountains. I have no idea what's waiting for me. I have no idea where God's taking me. But I know I have to go. Are you prepared to follow me? And in a fit of absent-mindedness, the dear woman said, yes. <laughs> so before she could change her mind, I put a ring on her finger and off we went <laughs> 
But I just knew that God was calling me to go beyond, and I had no idea where God was calling me. And that is because of the way Abraham and his obedience to God had just deeply impacted me as a young man. The next one that's really impacted me is a guy called Caleb. Now, we know Caleb, don't we? But the first time we meet Caleb is when, God's, when Moses appoints him and Joshua and 10 other guys from the, tribes of, from, from the 12 tribes, one from each tribe. Each of them were leaders in their tribe. And God says, I want you, I mean, God, sorry, Moses says, I want you guys to go and explore the land of Canaan and tell us what you find. Tell us about the military strength, the industry, the walls of the cities, the people, the produce, the climate. Just give us the full scoop. So for 40 days, they camp there, and the spies go out, and they check this land out. Um, and they come back, and man, they're excited. This land is flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. It's good. And then 10 of them go, oh, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites that live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan River. This is all bad news. Now, the Anakites were apparently descendant from the Nephilim, which were like giant people. They were huge people. And in fact, later on, when they went into the land, 40 years later, and destroyed it, they say the king of Og had a bed like, what is it, like three or four meters long. Four meters long and almost two meters wide. These were big guys. And so understandably, in their human spirit, they were going, we can't do this. This is just beyond what we can do. These are big guys. And then Caleb stands up, and he silences the people, and he says, no, 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 no. We should go out. We should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. I mean, what a contrast to the other two people, eh? But the men who go up and say, no, 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 we just can't do that. And they spread this bad news amongst all the people and said, again, we saw the Nephilim there, and we like grasshoppers, and we seem as grasshoppers to them, and you know, they just go on. And then Caleb and Joshua stand up again, and they say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us, and not only to rebel against the Lord, just don't do that, just don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people, says Caleb, because we will devour them. Their protection's gone, but God is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Can you hear his heart? I mean, he's been there. He's an adult man. He's in his 40s, Scripture tells us. You know, he's not some little kid of five years. He's aware of the dangers. He's aware what faces them. He's also aware of the Lord that they serve and the God they're walking with. And God says, well, because of Caleb and Joshua, they will be the only ones that are going to the promised land. The rest of you will not. And those other ten that fearful, that wouldn't do it, that spread the bad report, God struck them with a plague and they died. And then God said to the people, because of your unbelief and because you won't trust me, Omchir, back into the desert, and for every single day the spies were in the land, you're going to spend a year in the desert. 40. And so a group of them go, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. We can do this, we can do this. And they're going to head up to the hills and they get their armor, and Moses says, don't do it. <laughs> no, 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 we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And they head up the hills and Moses says, don't go there. And it says the Jebusites or whatever came down and gave them a hiding of note and chased them back, and many of them were killed. And God said, you learned your lesson into the desert. For 40 years you're going to wander. And he said, if Caleb will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. You see, Caleb wasn't held back by the challenges. He wasn't held back by the obstacles. His go-to understanding was that God would deliver on his promises. Now, Caleb was 40, right? So he had been in Egypt 
He had seen how God had freed them from Egypt. He had been there on the shores of the sea when the Egyptians were coming down in full force. He had seen God open their sea. He'd seen the Israelites get through. He had watched the ocean swallow the Egyptian army. He had seen how God had cared for him those few weeks out up to the desert. He had seen the land himself. And his go-to was, God can do this. God can do this. We can take this land. Let's do it. Let's experience this. And God saw the heart of Caleb. And he says, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit. And he follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And we see now finally, and this is the part about Caleb that really resonates with me at my age, where I am and where we're going. Caleb's an old man now. He's still got that same indomitable spirit. I'll, 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 kind of, I'll kind of sum up the story here. So for 40 years now, they've been walking through the desert, and every single day, God had given them food, he'd given them water, their clothes were not worn out, their sandals hadn't worn out, and they were now standing on the shore of the lake once again, and saw the river once again. They went in, God gave them the land, and they'd been conquering all the nations, they'd been driving them out, and they were all kind of settling down. And in Joshua 14, the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, was there. And he said to Moses, you know what the Lord said to me? Remember when we went into the land at Kadesh Barnea there? I was 40 years old when Moses sent us into the land. And I brought back a report according to what my convictions were. And I saw, and Moses promised me, that hill country up in Hebron. He said we could have it, me and my family. So Joshua goes, yep, yeah, I remember that conversation. I remember that promise Moses made to you. So Caleb goes, well, now, just as the Lord has promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years after that day. And this is just like a classic. He says, so here I am today. I'm only 85 years old. <laughs> I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out, and I'm just as vigorous to go into battle. <laughs> Don't you just love him? Just love this guy? And he says, now, give me that hill country that the Lord promised me that day. I mean, you know the Anakites are there. We know the cities are big. But with the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. So what can Joshua say to that? All he can go is, okay. <laughs> so guess what happened? Caleb took his men, sharpened their swords, got themselves ready for battle, and they went and defeated the Anakites and took the cities and captured them. And Scripture tells us, and then there was peace in the land. And it's that same indomitable spirit from Caleb which really resonated in my heart. Then the third person is a guy called Paul, a theologian. We first meet him in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen has been stoned to death. And they lay the garments at the feet of this young man called Saul who is giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. Right? And this young man Saul had been raised by Gamaliel, or been taught under the school of Gamaliel, and we know from extra scriptural writings about that time that Gamaliel was a highly respected teacher of the law, a highly respected teacher and rabbi. And so Saul was well educated, he had studied, and we can read from the way he sets out scripture how his arguments are very logical, and we can just read this man knows what he's talking about. And this young man was approving the death of Stephen. And it says, and then immediately Saul set out to destroy the church. 
And he started this rampage of hauling people out of their homes, out of worship, imprisoning them, and I suppose ultimately they were killed. And then Paul's on his, or Saul is on his way to Damascus. And I love the way Scripture says he was breathing out murderous threats. <laughs> and he muttering, I'll get him, I'll get him, I'll get him. He's like on his way to Damascus. There was no mercy in his heart, no mercy in his soul. He had all the letters of authority from Jerusalem. He was on his way, on his way to destroy the church in Damascus. And God meets him on the road. And that came to an end, didn't it? And his life was changed around. And he ends up in Damascus. And after his sight comes back again after this dramatic conversion on the road, it says, with the same vigor he showed while persecuting the church, he started preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, our Savior. And he grew more and more powerful, says Acts 9. And he baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Can you imagine those poor guys? They're thinking, Saul's coming, Saul's coming. He's got them sorted, he's got them sorted. Next moment, he's proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And these poor guys were caught in the back foot completely. And then this incredible life, 31 years of ministry started, preaching, teaching, missionary journeys, spreading the word of God, writing epistles, writing letters, encouraging. Some people reckon that he covered about 16 to 20,000 kilometers in all his journeys, most of it on foot. I mean, that guy had calluses on his calluses, eh? but he had this passion, this passion to share the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He had this passion to see that people's lives were changed. And he says in Acts 29, he says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. There's this fearless aspect in him here. Only I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing for me. to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And this task is what? To testify to the good news of God's grace. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the trials he went through, his beatings, his floggings. So I've gone without food. I've shivered in the cold. I haven't had enough clothing. I've been hungry. I've been hit with rods. I've been flogged. I've been in chains. I've been shipwrecked. And he just goes through this whole list of stuff. And why is he doing it? Because he feels compelled to share the, burden of, uh, the message of Christ and bring people to know, to know Christ and to help churches grow. And then we read about Paul in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Old man now, coming to the end of his life, and he writes these incredibly beautiful words. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near, and I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now... There is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. A drink offering was a container of either wine or water or olive oil. It had been consecrated, and it was poured out. And when you pour something out, you can't unpour it. Once it's gone, it's gone. And Paul says, my life is like that. It's been poured out now. I'm coming to the end. But I've fought the good fight. I run the race. I've kept the faith. 31 years of hard, consistent work for the kingdom of God was this man. The fifth person in Scripture, in conclusion, only took up two lines. <laughs> just two lines. But it had a profound, profound impact on me as a young man. We just started with math, and we just started flying into the neighboring countries. And I was feeling, Lord, there must be more than this. 
There must be more than this. And in Chronicles, there's a lad called Jabez. We all know the Jabez prayer. And one of the things he said, Lord, enlarge my territory. And I was struck by that. And I said, Lord, enlarge my territory. Enlarge our vision. Enlarge what we can do for you, Lord. I'm not content with just the stuff we're doing right now. And the Lord has done that. The part about keeping me from pain, I forgot to pray, so <laughs> my bad on that one. <laughs> but the Lord expanded Jabez's vision and expanded the territory he served in. However, it all starts with Jesus, our Savior, doesn't it? It all starts with our relationship with him and committing our life to him. And then we have Abraham, the one who obeyed God diligently, did the best he could. He was a weak man. We saw him failing here and there, but he was following God. And then we had this guy called Caleb, the man with a different spirit who trusted God totally despite some insurmountable odds, or so they seemed. Then we had Jabez, who just asked the Lord to expand his vision and to be with him always. And then we have Paul, who fought the good fight, who ran the race well to the end, and his life was poured out like a drink offering in the service of God. I hope the lives of these five men, or these four men, have impacted you, or will impact you, the way it's impacted myself. But some of us sitting here this morning are coming to the end of our life, and we're going, well, you know, maybe it's a bit late. It's never too late. It's never, never, never too late. And those of you in the beginning of your life thinking, how is my life going to work? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Now's a great time. <laughs> Now's a great time to say, Lord, show me where you want me to go, what you want me to do, and how to live my life with this attitude of faith. How to live my life in a way that's going to be honoring and pleasing to you, no matter where I go. Lord, if I'm going to be in business my whole life, may my whole business career be one that's honoring and pleasing to you in my decisions, my choices, my morals, my standards, my values. If, Lord, I'm going to be a teacher, if, Lord, I'm going to go into work in the home, if, whatever I'm going to do, Lord, help me to know that what I'm going to do is show me how to live a life which is worthy of you, which is glorifying to you, which is a trusting you, and which is obedient to you, despite the insurmountable odds.